with you now as we come to consider God's Word. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, I hope that you do, please turn with me to John chapter 17. We're continuing on in our study of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And today we're going to look at verses 6 to 19. This is the middle section of the prayer where Jesus prays for His uh, disciples there in His ministry. So John 17 verses 6 to 19 is where we're going to be. I hope you'll follow along and then keep your copy of God's Word open as we go through the sermon. Let's give our attention now to the Scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says, beginning in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please help us now as we consider the words of Scripture, which are your words. Please illuminate our minds by the Holy Spirit so that we would understand what you have revealed through the writing of the Apostle John, these things concerning Jesus Christ and faith and eternal life. We pray, Father, that Christ would be glorified today as we not only believe his word, but then obey it in response to his lordship. Father, thank you for a merciful high priest in Jesus Christ who intercedes for us. We pray, Father, that we would receive his ministry of comfort and grace today. Lord, please keep me from error. Please help me to speak things that are faithful and true to the scriptures and give your church the discernment she needs to hold fast to the things that are true so that we might hold to our confidence and our confession until the very end. We thank you, Father, that you hear us We thank you most of all that you have given us your son, and we pray in his name. Amen. If you spent any time around churches, then you've probably heard the saying that Christians are often prone to use, that we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. You familiar with that phrase? In the world, but not of the world. While believers live in this world, we should not love what the world loves, we ought not to follow what the world follows. 
in but not of. It's a common saying if you spend much time around churches. But do you know where the saying comes from? There's not an exact verse in the Bible that says Christians should be in the world but not of the world. There's not an exact verse that says that. Rather, the pieces of that saying come from Jesus' teaching right here in John chapter 17. You may have heard this while we were reading. Verse 11, Jesus' disciples are in the world. But verse 16, they are not of the world. In but not of. That's where the saying comes from. It pieces together parts of Jesus' teaching from this, this very chapter, John chapter 17. And yet, there's a sense in which this well-known saying, in but not of, there's a sense in which that well-known saying actually misses the emphasis of Jesus' prayer. If you read Jesus' prayer closely, the emphasis is not so much in but not of. Rather, the emphasis is called out to be sent back in. Called out to be sent back back in. In other words, there's a movement to Jesus' prayer that reveals His purpose more accurately than that phrase, in but not of. Look, for example, in verse 6. Jesus very clearly says that the disciples have been called out of the world. They no longer belong to the realm of darkness. They belong to God through Jesus Christ. Disciples are called out. But by the end of the prayer, notice how things have moved. In verse 18, Jesus sends them back in to that very same world they were called out of. So do you see the movement in the prayer? Disciples are called out in order to be sent back in. That's the difference between Jesus' prayer and our common phrase. That, That in but not of, that phrase is actually too passive. To be in something implies stationary existence. We're just in there. Jesus' language is active. We're called out to be sent back in. Jesus' language is mission-focused. Disciples are called out of the world in order to be sent back into the world, but they're not sent back in the same. They're not sent back in the same. They're sent back armed with the truth that called them out in the first place. It's not in, in but not of. It's, it's too stationary. Called out to go back is Jesus' emphasis. It's active. It's mission. It's focused. So my aim today is for us to better understand the movement in Jesus' prayer. I don't want us to be an in but not of kind of church. I want us to be a called out and sent back kind of church. Because that's how Jesus himself prays for his disciples to live. We're not stationary. We have a mission given to us by the Lord. So my aim today is to to help us better understand the movement in Jesus' prayer. In terms of an outline then, we're going to follow follow the prayer's movement and it occurs in three steps. There are three steps to the movement of Jesus' praying. Let me give them to you in advance. The first step calls believers out by God's grace. The second step protects them by God's truth. And then the third step sends them back in with the Word. So grace, truth, and the Word. That's the movement of Jesus' prayer. And that's what we want to follow. We don't want to be in but not of. We want to be called out to go back different. 
So grace, truth, and the word. Three steps to the movement in Jesus' prayer. That's where we're going. Let's begin in verses 6 to 10. Disciples are called out of the world by God's saving grace. That's step one. Disciples are called out of the world by God's saving grace. As Jesus prays, he offers a reminder for how the disciples first came to faith. Listen again to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Friends, that's a stunning summary of God's grace. When Jesus speaks in verse 6 of the Father's name, he's referring to the Father's character as God. This is what Jesus has revealed or manifested to his disciples during his earthly ministry. He has revealed to them the Father, the Father's name, his character, what he's like. But that raises an important question. If you have never asked this question of your own life, it's a question that you ought to ask. Why have the disciples received the Father's name? Lots of people didn't believe Jesus. Why did the disciples believe Jesus' teaching? The answer, according to Jesus, is grace. Notice how Jesus describes the disciples in verse 6. Did you catch it? Who are they? They are the people God gave him out of the world. Do, Do you hear God's action in that description? Jesus does not say that the disciples left the world in order to follow his teaching. It's the other way around, isn't it? The Father took them out of the world and gave them to the Son. At the core, then, this is the disciples' identity. They do not belong to the Father. They they, they do not belong to the world. They belong to the Father. And they do so only by grace. Jesus then goes on to point out how this grace leads to faith. Notice the last line of verse 6, where Jesus says the disciples have kept God's word. That sounds like a strange thing to say, considering how often the disciples have struggled to understand what Jesus is talking about. So what does it mean that they've kept his word? Well, the contrast is, is not between the disciples now and, say, the disciples later after Pentecost. The the contrast is between the disciples now and the world. How has the world responded to Jesus' teaching? With rejection. The world loves the darkness and refuses to come to the light. The disciples, on the other hand, have believed Jesus. Do they understand Jesus completely? No. But they do trust Him. They do trust Him. They do believe He is the Christ. Just as Jesus says in verse 7. They do believe He is God's Son. They trust that Jesus' words are God's words because Jesus is the Word of God. They do believe that. And friends, that's what grace produces in the human heart. When God calls people out of the world, the telltale sign is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus then expands on this point in verse 8. Look at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Again, how do the disciples know that the Father has called them out of the world? 
because they believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. At the core, this is what the disciples believe in John 17. They believe that Jesus' words are God's words because Jesus is God's Son. So work backwards from verse 8 to verse 6. If you work backwards from verse 8 to verse 6, you have a summary of salvation. The disciples came to embrace the truth by faith. That's verse 8. And that faith is the outworking of God's grace to give them to the Son. Verse 6. By grace, they believe. They believe because of God's grace. It's a summary of salvation. Now, if you struggle to to follow Jesus' teaching at this point, he very patiently goes over all of it again in verses 9 and 10. This is why Jesus is a master teacher, because he tells you what he, what he wants you to know, and then he often repeats what he wants you to know. And that's what he does in verses 9 and 10. Notice how he returns to grace in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, please don't misunderstand Jesus' point. He's not praying for the world. But don't conclude that Jesus is therefore harsh or heartless. Jesus is beyond patient and compassionate, even with the world. How do you know that Jesus is patient with the world? Because the sun rose today. He is beyond patient. But at this point, verse 9... Jesus is focused on his people in a particular way. That word particular is actually really helpful at this point. God's saving grace is not general, it's particular. He has a particular people whom he effectively calls in the Son. Likewise, Jesus' ministry of prayer is not general, but particular. Who is Jesus praying for in heaven right now? Not the world but for those whom God has given him out of the world. It's not general prayer, it's particular prayer. In his role as high priest, Jesus prays for a particular people, those whom the Father has given to him. It's all of grace, in other words. That's what verse 9 is telling you when he says, it's not the world but my people. It's all of grace. The distinction between the world and believers is not rooted in anything about us. It's rooted entirely in the grace of God that calls His people to Himself. And that helps us understand Jesus' words in verse 10. Listen again to what He says in verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. The all in verse 10 refers to all believers. All those who have believed that Jesus is sent From the Father. The all, in other words, is not talking about all of the world, but all of the people whom God has given to the Son. The point, you see, in verse 10 is to emphasize the grace of God in calling all of His people out of the world and giving them to the Son. So, let's go back to that question we asked just a moment ago. The question that I said, if you've never asked it before, you ought to ask it. Why... Are the disciples following Jesus? Because God, by His grace, called them out of the world and gave them to the Son. How is that grace operative in their life? By faith. 
as they believe Jesus and his teaching. The disciples embrace of the truth by faith is the outworking of God's grace in their lives. By grace we believe and we believe because of God's grace. Friends, these verses apply to Jesus' first disciples in a unique way, but there remains a significant application here for us as Christians. And that application has to do with the disposition of our hearts as believers. At every moment of our lives, our hearts should be taken up with two primary dispositions. Wonder and humility. The wonder flows from the fact That God, entirely by His grace, called us out of darkness. He rescued us from this world. And in doing so, He redeemed us from sin. Not sin in general, but sin particular. My sin. Your sin. That's our identity as Christians. We no longer belong to the world, but we belong to God. If you, so if you're a Christian today, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian today, then the, the melody line of your life is grace. Nothing but grace. God has made you His own. You didn't decide to leave the world. God came into the world and took you out of it. That's grace. And that grace, friends, is a wondrous thought. And flowing from that wonder is the twin disposition of humility. Our only boast is in the Lord, never in ourselves. Why are you a Christian and your neighbor not a Christian? Because of God's grace in your life. And therefore, the response from you is not to boast that you're just more spiritual than the next guy. Your response is not to boast that you just figured things out. Your boast is that God alone has saved you and therefore you're humble. You're humble. We talked last week about keeping the gospel central in our life as a church. Far too many churches are actually bored with the gospel and so they move on to other things as though there were something more important. We don't want to do that. We talked about keeping the gospel central in our church last week and that centrality begins with the humble recognition that our identity as believers owes nothing to us and everything to God. That kind of humble disposition, what do I have that I have not received? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? That humble disposition is step one for the gospel to be central in a church. The wonder of grace is all of our testimony. And that wonder ought to make us humble. Disciples have been called out of the world, not because we're more spiritual than other people, but because God called us by His own grace. At the same time, the world doesn't give up its claims on us quite so easily, does it? As any Christian can tell you, even after God's grace calls you to Himself, the world continues to make war against us. I mean, our own hearts make war against us. I wish somebody would have told me right after I become a Christian, hey, Jeff, you're still going to sin. That would have helped me understand what was going on in my life. So the world doesn't give up its claims on us very easily. 
What assurance then do we have that the world is not going to undo God's work of grace? Sure, God called me out, but what if the world sucks me back in? What assurance do we have that the world's not going to undo God's grace? The answer to that question is where Jesus turns in the second step of his prayer from verses 11 to 16. This is the second movement in the prayer. Disciples are protected from the world by God's unifying truth. We're called out by his grace and we are protected from the world by God's unifying truth. This note of protection appears very quickly in verse 11. Notice what Jesus says. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus acknowledges the need for protection in the, in the very first phrase. While he departs, the disciples remain. And since the world hates Jesus' disciples... They need protection. And incredibly, according to Jesus, this protection comes from God himself. Notice the verb in verse 11, to keep. You see that? To keep. The sense is to hold firm, to preserve against harm. In fact, if you look down at verse 15, the same idea appears again, but with a stronger emphasis. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Friends, it's, it's really striking that Jesus does not pray for his disciples to be taken out of the world. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just do that? From our perspective, that would be a surefire protection plan, right? If we just didn't live in the world anymore? If we're removed from the world, then the evil one can't harm us. <laughs> But that's not what Jesus prays. Instead, he asks for the Father to keep them while they remain in the world. The only conclusion then that we can draw is that the Father's protection is greater than the world's hostility. The only conclusion we can draw is that God's ability to keep his children is more powerful than the devil's desire to devour those children. That's the only conclusion you can draw from verse 15. So if you're a Christian today, I don't want you to leave this church this morning. I don't want you to leave without recognizing this point of comfort. God the Father is keeping watch over your soul. If you're a Christian, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Creator Almighty, as Bill so helpfully prayed from Psalm 8, God the Father is keeping watch over your soul. Does the devil prowl around seeking to devour your faith? Yes, and God's ability to keep you is greater than the devil's ability to devour you. Don't leave today without receiving that comfort that God the Father is watching over you. He has not left you to face the world alone. His power to keep you is greater than the world's capacity to harm you. Even so, how does the Father carry out that protection? I hear the comfort that God is watching over me. But how does this work? How does, how does God do that? Is it a mystical thing that just happens without, without me knowing it? Or is there a specific way that the Father keeps watch? Well, Jesus answers that question by pointing us to the Father's name. Look again at verse 11. Notice what Jesus asks God. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. 
And then Jesus continues with the Father's name in verse 12. Look there. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, the key point we need to see is that the Father's name is the disciples' protection. Only Judas has been lost, but even Judas's betrayal is governed by the plan of God. Scripture is fulfilled when Judas betrays Jesus. We're going to think about that more in the coming weeks. The rest of Jesus' disciples, his true disciples, have been protected by the Father's name. Of course, that just backs the question up one level. If the Father keeps us by his name, then what exactly is his name? Well, look at verse 14 where all the pieces come together. I love verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Friends, did you hear how verse 14 interprets verse 12? Maybe the most helpful tip for studying the Bible is that Scripture interprets the Scriptures. And verse 14 interprets verse 12. Look, look in your copy of God's Word. Verse 12, Jesus says, I've kept them in your name. Then verse 14, He says, I have given them your word. That's the connection there. The Father's name is His character, the truth of who He is. And that name is known to us only through Jesus' word. Remember, Jesus is the Word made flesh. So at the core, this is what Jesus has come to do, to reveal God to us, to reveal the Father's name in Jesus' own teaching. The takeaway then, the the answer to our question, is that the Father keeps Jesus' disciples by keeping them in the truth. By keeping them in the Word. That's how God protects them. It's through Jesus' teaching that disciples are shielded from the world's schemes. As the word of Christ dwells in the disciples' hearts, their faith is strengthened and preserved. That's how the Father will keep them. By keeping them in His name, which is revealed in Jesus' teaching. And when that happens, when disciples remain in Jesus' word, the unity of God's truth actually binds disciples together so that they are protected against the world. Look again at verse 11, and notice the connection between the Father's name and unity. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. When disciples remain in Jesus' word, one of the fruits is unity. Unity is a function of truth. Since there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, since God's truth is one, those who believe that one truth are united together in God's Word. You see, sound doctrine, which is what Jesus is talking about here, sound doctrine protects Christians by uniting them in the one truth of the one God. So just think about it for a second. If I, were, if I were to start drifting into error, if I were to start drifting into error, 
one of God's means to correct me is the unity that we have in the gospel truth. So if I were to start drifting into error, one of my brothers could come and say to me, Jeff, you're drifting from the truth, and the reason we know this is because you're no longer confessing the one faith that binds us together. You are moving away into error because you're losing the truth that unites us. Come back. Come back. Hold fast. Stand firm in the one faith of the one God revealed in His Word. So do you see how that works then to keep me from error? Unity in the faith, unity in the faith is not just about crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's on your on your systematic theology exam. It's about the preservation of your soul. Unity in the one truth of God is how God keeps all of us together in His one name. Friends, the takeaway of this part of Jesus' prayer should get your attention. There are limits in preaching of what you can communicate this is one of those limits that you just run up against as a preacher. The takeaway from this point should, should absolutely get our attention. If God's name is revealed in Jesus' word, then the way that God protects us from the world is through that very same word. What's more, now go one step deeper, go one step deeper. What's more, when the church gathers for worship and we remember the truth once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, when we do what we're doing right now, when the church gathers for worship, we experience together the keeping power of God. What is happening this morning? God is keeping you safe for heaven. How? By the songs we sing and the prayers that are prayed and the scriptures that are read and the fellowship that is exchanged and the word that's preached. This is something that so often troubles me about churches. We get so caught up in looking for the new thing that we miss the main thing. Through His Word and through our worship, God the Father is keeping us, you and I, in the faith. His name that we've sung about this morning. His name that we have prayed to this morning. His name that we are preaching. His name is active here here in this moment in the life of the church and in God's word do you see the grace do you see the power do you see the life do you see the preservation reading scripture is not simply a spiritual discipline it is the place of God's power to keep you safe gathering with the church is not an event Gathering with the church is not mere tradition. It is the arena of God's persevering power to protect you from the evil one. Please, let's not lose sight of this, brothers and sisters. I am pleading with you to not lose sight of this. I understand that the rhythm of a church is life. Sunday in and Sunday out. I understand that the rhythm of a church's life feels really small. Nobody is more acquainted with the smallness of a church's life than me. I do the same thing every week. So I get that the rhythm of a church's life can actually lull us into this, this thinking that nothing is happening. Now we just went to church, another sermon, another song, another prayer. I just taught another Sunday school lesson. I had another conversation in the foyer. 
I'll do it again next Sunday. I understand that the rhythm can feel small and that can lead us to think that nothing is happening. And, and when we start to think that nothing is happening, that's when churches go down really unhelpful rabbit trails of, you know what, we should get a new program. Or worse, you know what, we need a fresh word from the Lord. But that's not what a church needs. The church needs new eyes to see that what we're already doing is the place and the power of God here in our midst. God is present in the regular rhythm of a church's life, in the rhythm of worship and word and ordinance. That's where God is found to keep us. So I'm going to say again what I've said so many times before. Take up the Bible and read it. Find another Christian and help them follow Jesus by faith. And you're like, who, who should I ask? Look around. Somebody within a 12-foot radius of you is discouraged. Help them. Faithfully come to church to worship and to serve. Those are not small things. They are not small things. They are God's way of keeping you in His name. That's what Jesus is praying here. Disciples are protected from the world by God's unifying truths. And that makes every moment of worship, both personal and corporate, a significant expression of God's grace. It's far more significant than what we tend to think. That was step two in the movement of Jesus' prayer. That brings us to step three. From verses 17 to 19. Disciples are sent into the world with Christ's sanctifying word. Called out of the world by grace. Protected from the world by truth. And now sent into the world with Christ's sanctifying word. Jesus has just acknowledged in verse 16 that his disciples are not of the world. As Jesus is not of the world. The disciples belong to Christ. And in light of their belonging to Christ, Jesus prays for their sanctification in the truth. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We need to think carefully about Jesus' petition in verse 17. Sanctification is the ongoing process in the Christian life where we put off our old sinful practices and put on new holy practices. To be sanctified is to become more like Jesus and less like your old self. This is God's will for each and every Christian. Our sanctification. So when Jesus prays in verse 17 for the disciples to be sanctified in the truth, He asks on one level for their growth in practical everyday godliness. He wants you to look more like Jesus on Tuesday than you do on Monday. That's what he's praying for, your sanctification. And God's word is the fuel for that growth in godliness. As God's holy word dwells in our hearts, our lives grow in the same holiness that God himself possesses. This is how Christians grow, through God's word. So, mark it down. You ready? Write this down. If you are not regularly taking in God's word, then it is very unlikely that you will grow in godliness. God's word is the fuel. So if you're not regularly taking in the scriptures, it is very unlikely that you will grow in godliness. Anytime a Christian comes to me and says, 
Jeff, I, I have this sin that I can't seem to kick. My first question is always, tell me about your relationship with Scripture. My second question is, tell me about your relationship to a local church. Somebody comes and says, I have this sin, I can't kick it. First question, tell me about your relationship with Scripture. If God's holy word is not dwelling in us, then God's holy character is unlikely to be displayed in us. Jesus' prayer for our sanctification in verse 17 is reminding us that that, that that holiness happens through the word of God. But there's another aspect to verse 17 that demands our attention. This is where we need to think carefully. The verb to sanctify in verse 17 also means to set apart or to consecrate. In fact, look down at verse 19 where Jesus prays, And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, in verse 19, consecrate and sanctified are the same verb. There's not much difference between the two Actually, to be sanctified is to be consecrated for God's holy use. So if God is holy, those who serve Him must be consecrated. They must be set apart in the holiness that God Himself possesses. Now, look back at verse 17 and think about Jesus' petition from that perspective of consecration. Look at verse 17 and let's put consecrate in. Consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. What I like about that translation is that it has the note of mission. Do you hear it? It has the note of mission. Jesus' disciples are to be holy for a purpose. Sanctification, in other words, is not simply about my behavior being less sinful. Please hear me on this. Sanctification is not primarily about my behavior being less sinful. Sanctification is about my life being more holy for the purpose of serving God and others in His name. Do you see the difference? It's actually very significant. Sometimes we talk about sanctification as though it were the sole end of the Christian life. But in the New Testament, holiness and mission always go together. Holiness and mission always go together. We are sanctified in order to serve the holy God. And this is exactly where Jesus goes in verse 18. Notice how verse 18 completes the sense of consecration. Listen again, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There it is, the movement from verse 17 to verse 18. That movement is massive. Why are we sanctified in God's truth? So that we would take God's character with us out into the world. And how do we take God's character in the world? By having our minds renewed in God's word. Sanctified in the truth. We're no longer captive to the foolishness of this age. But our lives are transformed, sanctified by the renewal of our minds. Do you see the flow? Verse 17 serves verse 18. Holiness serves mission. Godliness advances discipleship. 
Oh, I pray how we, I mean, I pray we see this. Seeing this connection between verse 17 and verse 18, seeing that connection is the difference between a very small Christian life that never advances beyond itself and an expanded Christian life, a full Christian life, where even my growth is for the greater purpose of God's glory in other people's lives. Friends, I want us to pray for our lives in this way. I want us to pray for our lives in that verse 17 to verse 18 connection. Holiness for the sake of mission. So I'm just going to say some direct things here. If you are not regularly praying for God to sanctify you with his word, then that is your first step of application from this passage. Please don't rush ahead to all the other things you might do. You need to start right here with growing in godliness. If you are not regularly praying for the Holy Spirit to kill sin in your life, then please, that's application one in your life. Pray for holiness. And I mean that specifically. Identify just one or two areas in your life where you know you need to grow. Identify them. Write them down. Confess your sin to God and then utilize His Word to fight that specific sin. So if it's pride, then look for verses on humility. If it's lust, then look for verses on purity. If it's bitterness, then look for verses on forgiveness. If you don't know how to do this at all, if what I just described sounds like chemistry to you, if you don't know how to do that at all, then find one of the elders after church and ask us to help you. And we will. Whatever the area, if you're not regularly praying for growth and godliness, that's your step one. Pray, verse 17, ask God to sanctify you in the truth. If you are regularly seeking to grow in godliness, then ask God to reorient your pursuit of holiness towards other people. That's the 17 to 18 connection. Jesus prays verse 17, sanctify them, so that he can pray verse 18, send them into the world. God wants you to be holy, but he wants you to be holy so that you might faithfully serve him on mission in the lives of other people. Friends, I want us to pray the same way. If you are regularly seeking to grow in God's grace, then ask God to reorient your pursuit of holiness towards other people. Killing sin is not an end, but a means. It's a means to serving a holy God. One of the things that ought to strike all of us, every single one of us, from this passage, is that Jesus expects his disciples to grow in godliness. He doesn't hope for it. He expects it. Sanctification, in other words, is not optional. What we're talking about right now is not Christianity 2.0. It's not top shelf, super spiritual stuff. This is baseline Christianity. Sanctification is not optional. So wherever you're at in the Christian life, wherever you're at, Jesus' prayer ought to remind you that God's will in your life is that you kill sin, grow in godliness for the purpose of serving Him in the lives of others. It's not optional. As we conclude, I want to remind you that this work of sanctification is not entirely dependent upon you. 
by all means, you ought to pursue godliness and you ought to work hard at it, as we just talked about. But ultimately, your sanctification as a Christian is anchored in Jesus' consecration as your Savior. Look at verse 19. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What in the world does Jesus mean? He means that he sets himself apart, consecrate. He sets himself apart to do the Father's will. Jesus dedicates himself, as it were, to saving the people whom God gave him. And as, as we've seen throughout John's Gospel, Jesus is faithful to do that work. Amen? He's faithful. His consecration is certain and purposeful and effective, and not even the gates of hell will stop it. And our sanctification is bound up in that faithfulness. His consecration is the assurance of my sanctification. And therefore, therefore, we fight for godliness. Not because we believe we have to earn that holy status before God, but because we believe the Son has delivered that holy status to us in His blood. His consecration is the assurance of our sanctification, and therefore, we strive for godliness. The Son of God set Himself apart for this very purpose, that we would be sent into the world, sanctified in the truth. That's Jesus' prayer. Called out by God's grace in order to be sent in, sanctified with Christ's word. It's so much more than in the world, but not of the world. Called out by the saving grace of God, protected from the world by God's unifying truth, and now sent into the world, sanctified by Christ's word. So let's be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Let's be encouraged that Christ has equipped us with everything we need to be faithful to Him. Let's be encouraged. And then, let's be about the mission that Christ has given us. That's to be ministers of His holy gospel to the very ends of the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we stand before You only because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. None of us, none of us has pulled ourselves up to this position before you. We have all been called out by your grace. And we are protected now, Father, by your truth. Thank you for renewing our minds in the word of God. Thank you for the spirit of God that guides us into all truth. And we pray now, Father, for our sanctification in that truth. We pray, Father, that we would be made holy for your use. We pray that you would consecrate us in godliness so that we might serve your mission in the world. And we praise you, Father, that Jesus Christ's consecration is our hope. He set himself this task and he has fulfilled it completely and fully to save his people to the uttermost. And so we praise you, Father, in his name and we pray to you in that name, confident that you hear us. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of God's word.